This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to LNL. I'm Kylie Morris, standing in for Philip Adams. This episode, well, it's more a magical mystery tour, really, than a regular program. We'll be in the Kimberley with a community leader and earth rights advocate proposing a new way of thinking, no less, to combat climate change and protect nature. Then we'll hop in our time machine and wing back to ancient Egypt and Rome to meet the daughter of Cleopatra, who became a queen, but who history has all but forgotten. The Pacific is our first destination. Time to hear from the capital of Vanuatu, where the island nation is struggling with a physical and human wreckage wrought by two catastrophic cyclones, Judy and Kevin. A state of emergency was declared on Friday, as well as our regular and much-valued Pacific commentator Tess Newton-Kane, she of the Griffith Asia Institute in Brisbane. We're delighted to be joined by Rathina Ilonoka, who's the Acting Director General of Vanuatu's Ministry of Justice and Community Services and Head of Vanuatu's Department of Women. A warm welcome to you both. Good evening, Kylie. Rathina, I know that you're at a ceremony and we can't speak for long. So, Tess, I might just ask you to listen in for a few questions while we chat to Rathina. Rathina, we're hearing uh, the destruction was much greater in some areas than others. Can you describe the scale overall of what you've seen? Uh, thank you very much. Yes, um, as, as, the, as we all know, we've just been there have been all kinds of... Uh, Rathina, I, I can hear you. And if the listener could just bear with us, it's tricky to get phone lines that are working into Vanuatu at the moment. So uh, I'll ask for your patience. Rathina, can you describe the scale of the destruction? No, I think we're going to have to try and call Rathina back. Tess, I know that you're there and you've lived much of your life on Vanuatu and obviously have very strong connections there. What what are you hearing in terms of the scale of the destruction? Yeah, well, hopefully um, the director can can rejoin us. It's been it's been a really rugged few days for friends and family and connections in Vanuatu. Um, as we know, there were two cyclones that came through within the space of a few days, less than a week, which is unheard of. I don't, th- I haven't heard anyone say that they have any recollection of that. Both of those storms um, were bigger than expected, and both of them tracked across. Uh, a large number of the inhabited islands. So we've seen um, a lot of footage and pictures of uh, destroyed housing, particularly informal housing where, you know, people's dwellings have effectively just been left as as kind of matchsticks. We've also seen other um, buildings, including schools and public infrastructure that have sustained very serious damage. And we know that a lot of people have had garden crops uh, damaged, and you know that obviously has future impacts in terms of their food security. What What about Tess? The I mean, you talk about the kind of physical damage that's been done to buildings and to roads. And I, I was reading today about many of the planes, the island hoppers that are used to move between the various islands that make up Vanuatu, being simply flipped over on their backs. You know, mm. by by these monstrous winds. But in terms of people, what are we hearing about how people are coping at this stage? I mean, as we can hear from Rathina's phone lines, you know, the, the power is intermittent at best. Uh, what, else is, what else has been interrupted? Yeah, so obviously communications are still very patchy and we're, we're on the receiving end of that tonight. And there are still places, even in the capital, that don't have power. There are still about 3,000 people um, still in evacuation centres after they were moved or they moved from their homes in order to remain safe during the impact of the storms. Uh, in, in Port Vila, um, people have been advised to boil their water or, or use bottled water and not rely on the town water as, as being drinkable. And elsewhere in outlying areas, we've heard reports of people's water sources 
horses being um, being infiltrated and being tainted. So that there is an issue about people being able to access water that's that's going to be beneficial. And I think the other thing that um, certainly bearing, you know, what I'm hearing from my friends and colleagues when I get a chance to speak to them is a real a real sense of exhaustion, you know, going through a cyclone is an exhausting experience. And now they're really into that really hard slog of the the clearing up and repairing. And, you know, kids, kids haven't necessarily been able to go back to school. Some schools are still closed. Some businesses are reopening, others not so much. There was a huge queue outside the National Provident Fund offices this morning of people wanting to take out loans that are available through that provider in order to buy materials so that they can rebuild houses and you know um you know replant gardens so you know it's it's a it's a long road ahead and it's it's just extremely tiring and it you know it comes it comes hard on the heels of previous disasters i think you know even in the years that i've been associated with vanuatu the frequency with which these large destructive cyclones occur has increased dramatically. So, you know, in terms of recovering um, psychosocially and emotionally, that's, you know, there just is very little window. And I think, you know, I think that your listeners, you know, might need to bear in mind or might need to be reminded that there are still seven weeks of cyclone season to go. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility that another cyclone could, could affect Vanuatu between now and the end of April. And you mentioned the frequency, but also the ferocity, it would seem, of these mm. hurricanes. You know, some of the locals are saying we we always have hurricane season, but these hurricanes are almighty beasts that we have yeah. no experience of. Well, I think, I think to say this, it's not that they have no experience, it's just that... Pre- Previously, a Category 5 or a Category 4 might be once every five years or once every 10 years. Um, But now they're coming at that size every year. So whereas previously you might have had Category 1s and 2s, which are, you know, a disruptive for a day or so, now it's basically every time we're having to activate a full natural disaster response. And that's what Vanuatu is currently, you know, is now in the process of doing. And they've stood up all the the necessary response systems in order to do that. But like I say, it's just by the time, you know, they're just sort of constantly in a state of either preparing for, dealing with, responding to or recovering from a major disaster that either affects one one or more parts of the country or affects pretty much the whole of the country. Tess, sadly, we can't get a connection again with Rathina. We're, we're, oh, we're trying, but <laughs> and we will continue to try. But I wanted to speak to her because she's the head of Vanuatu's Department of Women. It, we Mm-mm. have been talking about how women are disproportionately affected by natural disasters and made more vulnerable because of them. We spoke to the Pakistani writer Fatima Bhutto on our last program and she was uh, highly highlighting that. In the Pacific, though, women are also very much part of the preparation and response test, aren't they? Mm. That's right. And I think this is something that we've seen, uh, not just in Vanuatu, but in other Pacific Island countries, such as Fiji and, and other countries, that uh, women play really important parts. They play, they, you know, we have women such as um, the director who are in senior roles within the the administration and they will be leading on response efforts and providing coordination for government work. Um, in, in Fiji, the National Disaster Management Office is headed by a woman who um, will be, provides leadership to her own team, but also will be offering support to her colleagues in Vanuatu. But they also play really important parts, play really important roles at the community level. So, for example, uh, after Cyclone Pam, one of my friends, uh, Mary Jack, was part of a group called uh, Women Talk Talk Together, which was, you know, basically about creating safe spaces in which women could come together and get information about what was going to happen in their community, what aid was going to be provided, how they would get access to it, 
what you know what they could expect how they could provide information about what their needs were not you know as heads of family or as women you know if they had particular needs around pregnant women or nursing mothers or particular needs around menstrual health um and so this was a, a particular you know, methodology that was used that was really allowed to give women that sense that they could raise their concerns. And from that, they have then been able to keep those conversations going and keep that participation going in terms of preparedness and readiness and also being part of response activities into the future. Tess, just taking a step back for a moment, of course, the Australian government says it's prioritising the Pacific. Can you see that in Australia's response to this crisis and Vanuatu so far? Well, certainly. So within in the Pacific, uh, Australia forms part of uh, what's called the FRANS initiative or the FRANS partnership, which is a combination of France, Australia and New Zealand. And so during cyclone season and in response to natural disasters, those three countries work together to support the Pacific, and we've already seen that happen. So New Zealand is chairing that grouping at the moment. Australia has deployed HMAS Canberra, which is due to arrive in Vanuatu, I think, either Thursday or Friday, with a deployment of 600 and is obviously going with a huge amount of aid. The Prime Minister of Vanuatu spoke this morning of what was expected in terms of shelter kits, kitchen kits, um, generators, water tanks, things that will allow people to um, start to rebuild their lives and, and be able to function and, and particularly be able to get people out of those evacuation centres and back to their homes. So Australia's already demonstrated um, a very rapid response and a very strong response um, and will continue, will no doubt continue to support the government of Vanuatu and the people of Vanuatu as they move from response to recovery. Tess, a few other issues if I can. Uh, a surprise mm. move in Fiji by the former Prime Minister today. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, so um, this this did come quite late on today. So the, the Prime Minister, a uh, former Prime Minister, sorry, Bainimarama, had previously been suspended from Parliament um, for until 2026. And so he has taken the option to resign his seat. He hasn't resigned as leader of his party, but he's resigned his seat. And this basically means that under the system that's used in Fiji, uh, another Fiji first person can go into Parliament. So they will retain 26 members in the parliament, um, which is obviously really important in terms of the numbers on the floor because the the ruling coalition has a very narrow majority. So, you know, this, you know, it's 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 been a bit of a it's been quite an interesting set of events in relation to how Fiji first have dealt with losing power. We now have the two people who were key to the Fiji First Government for such a long time, Bainimarama and the former Attorney General um, Aya Sayad Kayum, now out of Parliament, um, leaving Fiji First still in opposition. They'll have 26 MPs, but they've lost some other people as well, ones that actually had quite a bit of parliamentary experience. So in terms of performing on the floor of Parliament, um, it's not. It's it's hard to see where the strength is on the opposition benches. Obviously, they do have the strength of numbers to certainly put the government's uh, legislative agenda to the test. And just briefly, uh, Tess, if I can, an historic mm. negotiation of the Oceans Treaty. This seems significant. It's hugely significant. It is historic. It's been a long time coming. There's been a lot of very hard work done Pacific nations have played a really important part in these negotiations over a long period of time. Some of the people who were key to those negotiations are no longer with us, such as the late Tony de Brum. Very important for Pacific Island countries. You know, when you think about a country like Kiribati that has a tiny landmass but a huge 
ocean um, domain over which it exercises sovereignty and stewardship. So as this um, treaty becomes operationalised, it will certainly, certainly the hope in the Pacific is that it will very strongly align with some of the really important things that Pacific Island leaders have wanted um, in terms of ocean governance and also the um, extremely close linkage between how we look after our oceans and what that means for climate change. Tess, thank you so much for all of that. That's Tess Newton-Kane, who's the project lead of the Pacific Hub at the Griffith Asia Institute. Again, apologies that we weren't able to uh, return to Rathina Ilonoka uh, on Vanuatu. As we mentioned, communications are tricky, but we will persevere with speaking to her. Uh, Up next, not unrelated, what would happen if we gave nature the same rights as humans? were a different way to see the world to combat climate change and environmental destruction, a way to empower the rights of nature itself. Our next guest is challenging us to think about what happens if we flip the model which allows people to give themselves rights over nature, like the right to extract fossil fuel or the right to protect. What happens when you give nature its own rights? Professor Anne Polina is co-chair of Indigenous Studies and Senior Research Fellow at the Nulungu Institute at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. She's a Kimberley Nikinawara Indigenous woman and chair of the Marawara Fitzroy River Council. Anne joins us now from Broome. Welcome to Late Night Live. Thank you very much. And I'm speaking to you tonight on my home country, which is Juganinyaru country in Broome. And before we get into this issue of rights for nature, I wonder if you could start by describing for the listeners this, this beautiful, very beautiful country you come from. Oh, yeah, the Kimberley is magnificent. I mean, the Kim, as we say, once you come here, you're always a part of it. So it's an amazing biodiverse and culturally diverse um, catchment system. It's national heritage uh, listed in 2011. It's also the largest registered Aboriginal cultural heritage site in Western Australia. So it has amazing cultural and biodiverse values, but the people, not just Indigenous people, but the people who come from, come to this place become a part of it and they always remain part of it. It is ancient country, as you say, but it also has large deposits of fossil fuels. In fact, you were very much involved in the su- successful protests against the proposed gas refinery at James Price Point in 2013. Could you take us back to that struggle and tell us what you learned from it? Yeah, no, it was a very interesting journey. I think one of the things was the ability for local people to come together and unite on a matter of such great importance not just to industry, but to family and community. So it's been a great opportunity to have really been through that journey and reflect back and think about how did we come together as a a community to stand in solidarity to protect James Price Point, Walmadan, for generations to come. You talk about that sense of solidarity, but I guess we also know of places, different parts of Australia where these issues have split Indigenous communities, that tension between the need for jobs and income security and the desire to protect country. Is that part of what's persuaded you that there needs to be another way to approach this? Um, Well, I think, you know, one of the things is I come from the oldest living culture in the world and it's all about leadership and governance. And so from that perspective here in the Kimberley, we always govern from a regional perspective of bringing everybody together to look at how do we care for the commons, for the greater good of the commoner and for each and every one of us, but also thinking about multi-species justice, which is really the focus of my work, because what we're seeing in terms of the rights of nature is that Indigenous people across the globe are the ones at the front line protecting these amazing last bastions of biodiversity right across the globe. And we've been able to come together with, you know, legal practitioners and researchers and find a different way to really uphold the rights of nature under the leadership 
of Indigenous people and Native people across the planet. So I guess what I'm looking at is really pushing those boundaries to go, well, what does that actually mean, nature's rights? And looking at how do we interpret law of the land, not law of man, and bring that into a different way to see and be in the world. I'd like to explore the nature's rights issue more with you in a moment. But meanwhile, we we know that fossil fuels are speeding up climate change at a rate of knots. The fires, floods we've seen across our country, including, of course, around the Fitzroy River, where your mother comes from, and the recent floods in the remote Northern Territory. What do the elders say about the way the climate is changing, Anne? Well, it's exactly right. I think one of the things for many listeners that may not know was in January 20. 23 this year, we had the largest flood ever recorded in West Australia's history. So we are right at the coalface of, you know, changes in country. And I guess one of the things is, as I said, my community was totally underwater. We still have not been able to get back to see the extent of the damage. So prior to um, the wet season, for the last two years, I've been working on country with Um, traditional owners, custodians, community practitioners, looking at the Boab population because those of you that may be aware, Boab population, Ababab in Africa are keystone species and apparently that species will be lost to humanity within 50 years because the water table is shifting. So we decided that we wanted to look at the only um, species of Boab in the Kimberley. And part of that is it's given us two years of very clear um, observation of fusing both Indigenous science, Indigenous traditional ecological knowledge and Western science and bringing those bodies of knowledge together to what we call read the country, feel the country, listen and see what climate is already doing. We are seeing sea level rise, temperatures rising, um, food and water scarcity and insecurity. So all of these um, what they call bioindicators or what we call signs, what the country is giving us, was already starting to come into play in the last 10 years. So we're very, very cautious about, one, the precautionary principles in terms of do we really understand what is, you know, touted to befall us for the next 10 years, according to the Bureau of Meteorology? So this recent flooding that happened in the Kimberley, everyone was really, you know, every outside person who's come to help has been looking at this from, oh, look what the river has done. But the elders that I work with and right across the catchment is saying, this is not what the river has done. This is man-made. This is human-induced. So the climate impacts that we're getting have been contributed by man's change of the landscape and the extraction of energy such as from oil and gas and coal and all of those things. So this ancient wisdom is telling us that we cannot continue to have business as usual um, if we're going to try and respond and be resilient and adaptable to climate change. So all of these things are showing that we need collective wisdom because we are dealing with complexity. And unless we listen to the voices and we get the um, Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous wisdom, we're not going to be able to right-size not only our nation but the planet. So how can Indigenous wisdom protect humanity from climate change? Can you outline some of the kind of contours of that? Well, I think one of the things that we're saying is that, you know, we're talking about preventative um, chaos and uncertainty and, and unjust development. And so what we're saying is that we believe that it's time that we really need to have a pause. As I said, my friend um, Greg Campbell has written a book called Total Reset. We need to reset the way we see and be in the world. We need to understand that we cannot keep extracting these energy systems and not impact on the planet. So what we're saying as Indigenous people, particularly in this country, being the oldest living culture in the world, is that we need to ground our collective thinking and our collective action in understanding what Indigenous people can bring to this dialogue in terms of transforming the change. At the moment, what we're talking about is really a clash of values. Who gets to determine what should be done and and not done? And so it's very important that we bring in Indigenous thinking, Indigenous wisdom, but our lived experience living on the land with the land. And what we're saying to our fellow Australians is that what we're seeing right around this country, not just in the Kimberley, 
but the need for us to look at how do we come together and develop the way we um, understand impacts of development from an informed basis. If somebody wants to come and do something in the region, how do we bring it to the table where we can all sit down and have informed decision making, understand the impacts, look at what the cost might be and look at what the benefits might be and weigh that up as people living in the region to determine what should be in and what should be out. So let's unpick that idea a little further. I mean, can you explain your thinking around, for example, if rivers had rights and, as you say, a, a development is proposed and the, and the people behind that come to town and meet with a community, if the river already has the rights that don't need to be proven and don't rely upon people's connection with it, then how would you imagine that conversation going? Well, that's a very interesting um story because what we have in Western Australia is we actually have a legal precedent where Indigenous people and the state government work together to take a legal case on the Ashburton River story. And the story from that was that Twiggy Forrest was looking at, um, sorry, pardon me, Andrew Forrest was looking at putting 10 weirs um, through the um, Ashburton River. And what the Aboriginal people from that um, River said was that if Twiggy was to put these weirs along the Ashburton River, it would kill their ancestral serpent being. So that was a legal case that has been founded in Western Australia through the State um, Arbitration Tribunal. And when that came up and it found in that case, obviously Andrew Forrest is challenging this, but what we're showing is that there's room within the legal framework to start to see these rivers, as I said, not in terms of personhood and nature's rights, but in terms of ancestral being rights. And so this is a little bit of a change to just personhood. It's recognising rivers as ancestral living beings, not only with a right to life, but a right to live and flow. And we've seen the voice become a contentious issue in the Indigenous population, but also the broader population with some some complaining there's not enough detail, others saying the presence of a voice to parliament would, parliament would have made sure, for example, that policymakers were better informed about the impact of alcohol in, the, in Alice Springs. Do, do you have a different take on the voice? Um, I, I think, you know, when the millenniums are speaking, what they're saying is that this is a no-brainer. Indigenous people do need to be recognised in the constitution. I totally agree we need to be clear about what the framework for engagement going forward should be. Um, my take on it is that we really need to be giving voice to young people in terms of what their dreams and hopes are, particularly Indigenous people, in terms of how do we bring the rest of the population with us. So the story is a very um, long overdue story in terms of justice. I saw um, Justice French put a posting on that this is a recognition of the long um, story of colonialism in this country. And what I'm saying in the work that I do is that Today, it is about all of us. We are trying very hard to bring the rest of the Australian population with us. And in order to do that, we need a story that's going to show that there's a collective responsibility in how we move forward with leadership and governance across the nation. So from that perspective, I think that um, there should not be a challenge, but I think there is a real query in terms of how is the voice of remote Indigenous people going to be factored into the decision-making process? How do people in very remote locations get to um, privilege what they want in this story? So it's for me, it still has a little um, journey to go in terms of looking very closely at what the concepts of the detail should be. But I think, you know, we as Australians, particularly fair-minded Australians are saying that we should really be thinking about how do we look at this from a regional perspective? How is the voice of region and remote um, Indigenous people going to be factored into this? It yeah. is interesting, Anne. Sorry, just to add, chime in there. Canberra, there's very much focus on Canberra, isn't there? You know, voice to parliament and, and what that office or what that body would look like in Canberra. But I guess there's also the question about well, what does it mean for regional representation? What does it mean for regional catchments? How uh, are those views and opinions going to be prioritised? Yeah, no, that's a very important point. And I guess one of the things that many Australians may not be aware of is that in this country, we have a policy that isn't in place 
at the Commonwealth level until 2030, and it's framed around what we call nature reserve systems or bioregional frameworks. So every part of Australia has already been mapped into watersheds, into regional um, watersheds, and so it allows us to look at how do we govern and determine, particularly in terms of climate change, how do we work together at a regional level, at a catchment level, at a watershed level, to really start to read the country and understand these impacts so that we can respond from the regional level and then work through to the state and the Commonwealth. And 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 you, I've seen you say elsewhere that local government, you think, has a key role here and should really be empowered in any new power structures. Oh, most definitely. I think one of the things is, um, well, even local government. I mean, local government is not in the constitution, and this was one of the um, constitutional queries that were up, you know, before fellow Australians. So, at the moment, I've been working in local government for the last twenty years, and what we've seen is amalgamation of local government. So, the existing model of local government does not work. We need economy of scale. We need to be able to look at this from a much region, bigger regional perspective. So my notion is that when we start to have a conversation about the legitimacy of local governance and regional governance, we really need to be thinking about a framework that is going to look at the collective well-being of all of us in the region, Indigenous and not, which could be grounded in what I'm calling a biocultural model. So having an Indigenous um, leadership table that can come together, think about things, but then be able to inform a much bigger regional stakeholder uh, group which has everybody at the table. So I think there is room to look at, one, that the fact that we do have an existing policy until 2030. And might I say that the only place in Australia that I'm seeing this happen is in the Blue Mountains. And so there is this opportunity before 2030 to start to look at how do we govern and how do we lead from a much bigger regional perspective. I wanted to ask you, how could this new biocultural model, this new way of seeing nature's rights impact something like the latest threat to the Pilbara region and to our climate emission targets, which is the Scarborough gas project? Where does the conversation begin there through the prism of a new model? Well, I think it's about bringing a wide range of diverse um, people to the table, particularly in terms of Indigenous leadership, I think one of the things at the moment is this concept around who is the representative voice, who speaks in the region for Aboriginal people, and what we should be able to do is have an opportunity to bring diversity to the table, to bring diverse Indigenous leadership that can also influence the way that we're thinking about. Because as I said earlier, we're dealing with complexity. We need collective wisdom. We need science, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. We need to be able to look at these projects and look at the cumulative impacts of development on the well-being of all people in the regions. Finally, Anne, it is International Women's Day. So what would you like to tell people about the conditions for women and children in many remote communities in Australia? Yeah, look, what I'm saying is that right around Australia, what we're seeing is that we really need to give voice to our young leaders. We need to raise their profile. We need to give them an opportunity to lead. And when I'm talking about young people, I'm talking about leaders in their 30s and 40s who've got a different way of seeing how we can operationalise the world in which we live. So it's women having a voice, privileging our story, being brave and putting our stories out there and saying we want an inclusive paradigm, an inclusive way of walking and working together with fellow Australians. We want you to feel your country, hear your land and be a part of it. And on that hopeful note, thanks for speaking to LNL. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Professor Anne Polina is the co-chair of Indigenous Studies and a senior researcher at the Nalungu Research Institute at the University of Notre Dame. She's speaking as part of the Planet Talks program at the WOMAD Festival in Adelaide on the topic of natural rights, along with legal scholars Erin O'Donnell and Peter Burden. Coming up, the little-known story of the daughter of Cleopatra and Mark Antony.
To most of us, the name Cleopatra refers to just one woman, the tragic queen of ancient Egypt and doomed lover of Mark Antony. Elizabeth Taylor portrayed her for Hollywood all raven-haired with those come-hither coal-rimmed eyes. But there was, as it turns out, another Cleopatra, who was also a ruler, a queen and a survivor. Her history, though, has laid dormant for thousands of years. So now, together, let's rediscover Cleopatra Cellini, daughter of Cleopatra, Queen of Egypt, and Mark Antony. She lived a life every bit as dramatic as her infamous mother's, but very little has been known about her until now. Dr Jane Draycott is a historian, archaeologist and lecturer at the University of Glasgow and critically has just released the first modern biography of Cleopatra Cellini. Jane, congratulations on the book and welcome to LNL. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be here. Now, could we start uh, by your describing for us how you first discovered Cleopatra Cellini. I believe it's got something to do with an antique dish. Well, it's it's a very roundabout way, to be perfectly honest. I was doing my PhD at the University of Nottingham and my PhD was on health and healing in Greco-Roman Egypt. So I was looking at medicine and magic and religion. And one of the things that I was looking at was the way that animal uh, parts were used in medicine and crocodiles are uh, fairly fairly unique to Egypt in this period. They are used in, in art as, as a symbol of Egypt. And I came across Cleopatra Cellini because she uses the crocodile as one of her personal symbols. And once I started looking through the material culture of, of that period of the sort of mid to uh, late first century BCE, I found other artistic representations of her. And yes, the 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 most significant one, the most most dramatic and exciting one to to look at, is the uh, silver bowl from Boscoriale. The at the it was found at the Villa della Pisanella, which was buried by the eruption of Vesuvius in seventy nine, amongst a, a huge collection of of fabulous silver work. Uh, but this particular bowl. It depicts a woman wearing an elephant scalp. And uh, that woman, it has been suggested, is Cleopatra Cellini. Now, there's a little bit of a, a time lag between that conclusion and the dishes discovery or the silverworks discovery, isn't it? It was excavated, as you say, at this site just outside Pompeii in 1895. But it's not until 1983 that a German archaeologist, Andreas Linfert, says, you know what, I don't think this is the original Cleopatra we're all thinking it is. This is someone different. This is her daughter. Yes. Well, you have to bear in mind that this this dish is just one piece in a hoard of silver, which is, is around 100 pieces in total. So when people were getting to grips with all of this silver, there were other pieces that were more immediately obvious and interesting to them. So there are representations of the Emperor Augustus, of the Emperor Tiberius, of the General Germanicus. There are all sorts of fun little skeletons dancing and things like that. So this particular dish was not necessarily one of the things that immediately caught the eye of people who were working on it. And when the time came for them to pay attention to this dish, well, the identity of the woman in question is something that is very much debated. And so over the course of, of the century, there were various suggestions made. The, the earliest one, the most obvious one to, to most people is that it's a personification of Africa, because in this period, geographical personifications tend to be female and they tend to have certain specific symbols, attributes with them. And the elephant scalp is seen as one of the symbols of Africa in this period because elephants are, are you know, the one, another African animal like the crocodile. So it was suggested it could be Africa. Later, it was suggested it could be Cleopatra VII, the Queen of Egypt that we're all familiar with, because there's an asp and there are a few other things uh, alongside the portrait on the dish. And so nobody was really in agreement. And then eventually it was suggested, hang on, it doesn't quite make sense for this to be Africa based on all of the other iconography on the dish. It doesn't also quite make sense for it to be Cleopatra based on all the other iconography on the dish. 
but it could be Cleopatra Cellini. So tell me about Cleopatra Cellini herself. Was she the only child of, of Queen Cleopatra and Mark Antony? No, she was not. She's one of three. She and her fraternal twin brother, Alexander Helios, they are born first. And then three years later, their younger brother, Ptolemy Philadelphus, is born too. So Antony and Cleopatra had three children together in addition to their separate children with other people. That that there feels like a buried fact. I mean, I'm, I'm not particularly knowledgeable in ancient history and histories of ancient Egypt, but I don't remember in the popular representation around Cleopatra and Mark Antony, there being three kids who needed to be fed every evening. There are a couple of reasons for that. First and foremost, it's a matter of the ancient sources because the the Romans, and it's the Romans who are mainly writing about Cleopatra and Antony, they write about them in a, in a particular way. And they don't care generally about children. Childhood is not something that Roman sources go into a huge amount unless there's some amazingly significant event that can be used to foretell something in the future when people are, of course, writing in hindsight. So because the children are not particularly historically significant as far as the Roman writers are concerned, who are writing you know, 50, 100 or more years after their, their lifetimes, they don't really feel the need to focus on them. There is also the fact that during this whole period, there was a lot of effort made by Augustus and by the people around him to erase Antony uh, from the, the, the general uh, cultural environment to do the same to Cleopatra, where they, where they couldn't criticise her and, and blame everything on her. They, they just wanted to sort of minimise her presence. So the sources are doing that uh, in, in antiquity. And then, of course, our later perception is, as, as you, you introduced this, this, uh, this section about the, the tragic love affair, children are not really compatible with, with the sort of sexy, tragic romance aspect of Antony and Cleopatra's relationship that contemporary culture is, is the most interested in. So Cleopatra Cellini is, and her brothers, presumably, are, are they, uh, what age are they when their parents commit suicide? What, what does that mean for their fate when it occurs? So they're very young. Cleopatra Cellini and Alexander Helios are around 10 years old and Ptolemy Philadelphus is around six. And it's their youth that protects them in many ways because their their older brother, their older half-brother, uh, Caesarian, Ptolemy, Ptolemy Caesar, who was the son of Julius Caesar and Cleopatra, and their older half-brother, Antony's son, Marcus Antonius Antillus, they are seen as adults, be, being around uh, the age of sort of 16 or so. They're seen as adult males and therefore threats because they can lead armies, they can have political careers that can be dangerous and, and they can be rivals to Augustus. So the fact that they're adults means that, unfortunately for them, they're, they're uh, going to die. Whereas for the children, it's it's harder to, to get away with murdering uh, three children. And there is also the, the hope, the, the ambition that they can potentially be re-educated and uh, repurposed by Augustus, by Rome, to do something beneficial. So Octavian's uh, the man who conquers or the leader who, who conquers uh, Egypt. He has the spoils at hand, these three children, and as you say, I guess a wish to make them Roman as part of the conquering of that empire. What does he do with them? So Octavian, yes, in this period uh, where he has charged the children, he is gradually consolidating his hold on Rome. The Roman Republic has fallen, but he presents himself as restoring the Republic, when in actual fact what he's doing is constructing what is essentially a monarchy with, with himself as, as the sole ruler. And he very carefully brings everybody together. So he he takes charge not just of Antony and Cle Cleopatra's children, but also Antony's other children. And he brings them into his household and into his family with a view to creating a sort of um, a unity. It's it's he 
talks about restoring peace and stability and prosperity to Rome. And one of the ways that he he does this visibly is, is to amalgamate his family and Antony's family. And in fact, the Julio-Claudian dynasty, except for the Emperor Tiberius, all the rest of the Julio-Claudian emperors are descended from Antony. So am I right in thinking that by the time she has been Romanized, or she's been brought back anyway into the, the Roman fold, she's becoming a teenager, presumably there's a strategic marriage waiting for her. Yes. So she's brought to Rome and she lives in Rome in the household of Octavian and his wife, Livia. So she's brought up from the ages of 10 to around 15 in this Roman household. And it would have been very, very different to her Egyptian upbringing, because one of the things Octavian likes to do is present himself as being no better than anybody else living in a relatively humble household and and being very traditional with his women folk weaving all of his own clothes and things like that so very very different to the to the glamorous luxurious royal lifestyle she would have had in alexandria and yes in this period the age of 10 to 15 there is of course puberty and for the romans once girls go through puberty they are marriage material. You want to get them married off as quickly as possible because there are lots of beliefs surrounding women and their sexuality and you need to control that and make sure that they channel their sexuality into having legitimate children to benefit the family. So what do you do with someone like Cleopatra Cellini? Who can you marry her to? Because bearing in mind, she, at this point, her two brothers have seemingly died. They disappear from the historical record. So she is the last remaining member of the Ptolemaic dynasty. She is the last person with any sort of rival claim to the kingdom of Egypt that Octavian has worked very hard to turn into a Roman province and and, uh, keep personal control over. So he has to think about what he's going to do with her and who could possibly be a suitable husband for her that is not an embarrassment to to her and her status and her station, but also not a threat to him and his status and station. And who does she end up with? She ends up with a young man called Gaius Julius Juba. And he, like her, is the child of a deceased North African ruler. His father was King Juba of Numidia. He chose the wrong side in the civil war between Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great, and he committed suicide uh, when he was defeated during the course of that. Caesar seized his kingdom, seized his his wealth, his possessions, and and, uh, his son as well. And Juba would have been um, a baby or, or a toddler when this happened. So he was taken back to Rome. He was raised in Caesar's household until Caesar's assassination. Then he was raised in Octavian and Octavia's household. And... Because he was so young, he would have had no memory of North Africa. He was brought up entirely as a Roman, as his Roman name, Gaius Julius Juba, suggests. He was educated, given the best of everything. He he was fluent in Latin and Greek. He became uh, very well known for his scholarship. And he seems to have been a very intelligent, cultured young man. And it's him that is matched with Cleopatra Cellini. So, Jane, you have this pair I'm guessing Rome doesn't want them to become too powerful, but at the same time, they're they're ready to rule in some form if they can be, you know, if their talents can be directed in the right way. So where do they rule? So Octavian is nothing if not resourceful. He's got these two uh, North African royal family members. So he decides he's going to send them to North Africa. And there is the sort of northwestern part of Africa that was kingdoms. Uh, It was, there was, uh, there were two kingdoms that we don't necessarily know very much about. We know, we know who their kings were and their kings were likewise part of of the civil wars in this period and and were on different sides and seem to have conveniently died uh, at, at some point. And so this entire huge expanse of territory just opposite Spain uh, is needing to be taken care of. This is kind of Morocco, Algeria territory. Is that right? Yes, it's it's what we today know as as Morocco and Algeria. And so, Cellini, Cleopatra Cellini, does in fact become a queen. She does. Well, she she is technically she's a queen in her childhood because Antony uh, gives her territory, gives her Crete and the Cyrenaica. 
And you could also say technically, as soon as her mother uh, dies, she is queen of Egypt. But in actuality, when she's an adult woman, she gets sent to North Africa to rule the kingdom of Mauritania, as as they call it, different from the, the modern country of Mauritania, which is spelled differently and is further south. So tell me, she she becomes a queen. She has a period of ruling together with Juba, but then she she dies quite young. Is that right? Yes, she and Juba seem to rule Mauritania very capably, very successfully for around twenty years, and then at some point towards the very end of the first century BCE, or perhaps the the very beginning of the first century CE. It seems that she dies, unfortunately, and it is early. She's around 35 years old. So the one possible cause of this is, is, as with so many other ancient women, something to do with complications in pregnancy and childbirth. Tell me, do you think there's ever chance? I mean, we know the story of her mother so, so well, and you've explained very well why it is perhaps we didn't ever learn quite as much about Cleopatra Cellini. But what do you hope to achieve, I guess, by digging into her history and writing this first modern biography of her? What I really wanted to do was provide... An example of a different sort of ancient woman. We we are very familiar with with some ancient women, and they tend to conform to certain um, stereotypes, archetypes. So we have this this habit in the ancient sources. There is this habit of setting women up against each other. So you have the very virtuous woman, and in in this particular period, that's Octavia, that's Octavian's sister, Octavia, Antony's wife. And for there to be a virtuous woman, there has to be uh, a not virtuous woman, uh, you know, the the bad woman to this good woman, and that is Cleopatra. And these are very sort of simplistic ways of, of looking at all of this. And and so what I wanted to do was provide yet another perspective and say that we can construct an ancient woman's life, an ancient woman who was doing important international things, who had power, who had influence, who was intelligent, who was cultured. And she's not presented as a paragon of virtue and she's not presented as a disgraceful whore. She's got far more to her than these very simplistic binaries. Jane, it's a fascinating story. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. Jane Draycott is a historian, archaeologist and lecturer at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. Her new book is called Cleopatra's Daughter, Egyptian Princess, Roman Prisoner, African Queen. It was published by Head of Zeus and is available in Australia from Bloomsbury. That's it for these two special International Women's Day editions of LNL. It has been special. Thanks so much for listening. Philip will be back in the chair tomorrow when he'll be joined by Oxford historian and best-selling author Peter Frankopan, who's taken an unprecedented look at how climate has shaped the rise and fall of empires and what this might mean for our future. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.